Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Well, I don't have any story that's going to top that, so <laughs> we might just go home and call it a day. I don't know. Um, no. <laughs> Thanks, Ike. Uh, the truth about ourselves is probably almost always, if not always, worse than we would care to admit. Uh, I have a younger cousin named Jolene. Jolene's going to be five here in about a week, and she will tell you if you ask her that, yes, Jolene by Dolly Parton is her favorite song. Um, it's not because she understands the lyrics of the song or anything. She just likes to hear her name sung over and over by Dolly Parton, so that's really kind of all that, that goes on there. But last Christmas, uh, Jolene was going to see Santa, and she was going to tell Santa about everything that she wanted for Christmas, and leading up to that day for a couple weeks, my dad, her Uncle Mike, had been messing with her a little bit, as he likes to do, and, and he kept telling her that, you know, I've been texting with Santa, uh, I've, been, I've been letting Santa know if you've, been, if you've been good or not, and she, like she usually does, kind of ignored him, she assumed that her Uncle Mike was making things up, which a lot of times he is. But what Jolene didn't know was that actually that when she was going to go see Santa, uh, the guy who was going to be playing Santa that night was one of my dad's co-workers. And so they had discussed this. And so Jolene goes to see Santa that night, and she gets up in Santa's lap, and she begins telling him about everything that, that she wants for Christmas that year and, and running through all the things. And she, she goes on and on and on, and Santa eventually says to her, Now, Jolene, have you been a good girl this year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been a good girl this year. Uh, could, I, could I ask your Uncle Mike if you've been a good girl this year? And her eyes got big. I don't know what kind of calculus she was doing in her head, but she was trying to sort a lot of things out in that moment. She thought about it for a little bit, and she says to Santa, um, you can talk to Aunt Vic, my mom, but, but, but don't talk to Uncle Mike. Apparently, my mom, Jolene's Aunt Vic, will lie for her. Apparently, Aunt Vic's more of a pushover than Uncle Mike is. I don't know. Um, but for whatever reason, for the logic of a five-year-old in that moment, uh, Uncle Mike was going to give the truth. And the truth is just about always worse than we would care to admit. We can go about day to day and we can put on a good show that we've got it all together. Uh, we can come into this room on Sunday morning and think everything's good. We can sit out there and drink coffee and talk about all the highlights of our past week. We can make sure that we only post the highlights of life on social media so that everyone will be impressed with us. Uh, but those things are never the whole truth. Uh, we can be careful to always present the best, but when we do that, we're always holding something back fearing that if the whole truth came out, that would be the end. If we can go about the world thinking that if we're going to be liked, if we're going to be respected by our friends, our peers, our coworkers, our families, even our God, we can't let them see the whole truth. We can't let them see the dark side of life. The character in the story of the book of Acts we're going to be looking at this morning is someone who doesn't get the luxury of hiding the lowlights from us, 
hiding the darker parts of life. Instead, Scripture, like it often does, presents us with the entire truth. And I'll say up front, this sermon is probably going to be a little different from other sermons in this series so far because the character we're looking at this morning, John Mark, is a little more of a minor character in the book of Acts and across the New Testament. And for that reason, we're going to to start in the book of Acts this morning and then bounce around a little bit throughout the New Testament and look at a couple places where he shows up. And now, of course, John Mark is most famous to us for being the author of the book that we know of as the Gospel of Mark. And we're not told this for certain, but as we read through the Gospel of Mark, it seems like uh, when we get to the last night of Jesus' life, as he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark writes himself into the story. He, he gives us a brief introduction of himself. We're not going to read the whole passage, but in Mark 14, 50-52, uh, Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He's been arrested by the Roman authorities. There's chaos. There's people running away from the scene so that they don't get arrested as well. And Mark throws in this strange little tidbit. He says there was a young man in the garden. He was wearing nothing but a linen garment. He was basically in his pajamas. And the soldiers, they try to grab this young man, and the young man wriggles himself free from them, and he runs away naked. It's a strange, random story. It doesn't show up anywhere else in the Gospels. It doesn't move the narrative of Mark forward in any way. It doesn't help us get a better sense of what is going on in this scene. So we, again, we don't know this for certain, but it seems like Mark goes out of his way right there in those couple verses to show us that he was there the night Jesus was arrested. In Acts chapter 12, we get this story where Peter has been imprisoned, and then he's miraculously released. And when Peter is released, we're told he goes to the home of Mary. And Mary, we're told, is the mother of John Mark. There's a group of Christians there gathered together praying for Peter. And I mention those two passages because they're minor details, but they show us that uh, Mark might not always be at the center stage when we're looking at the story of the early church and the Gospels and in Acts, but he has a front row seat to everything that's going on. He, he has been there throughout all the events we've been looking at in the book of Acts, especially over the last few weeks. But that front row seat does not mean that his life was always sunshine and roses. John Mark was a person acquainted with failure. As we'll see, he shows up here in some of the passages we're going to look at this morning, working alongside Paul in the book of Acts. And when we're, when we're in the low points of John Mark's story, it looks like maybe things are over. Maybe... Maybe he just needs to pack it in. Maybe he needs to go work for the Zombrota sewage treatment plant. I don't know. But those failures are not the end of the story. He remains as a part of the church, as a part of the work God is doing. And through those ups and downs and changing and shifting roles, we see through it all someone who was acquainted with failure, but someone whose past failures did not lead to their future disqualification. And we'll see how that plays out beginning in Acts chapter 13. We're going to kind of fly over that. Acts 13 is the beginning of the work of Paul and Barnabas as a missionary team. At the beginning of this chapter, uh, 
uh, the leaders of the church in Antioch are together and they're praying. And as they're praying, the group senses the Holy Spirit calling them to set apart Paul and Barnabas for missions work. And so they do just that. And as the two go out, we're told in Acts 13, 5, that John Mark goes along with them as their helper, is what the NIV says there. Or maybe your translation says that, they, that he was an assistant. Or I couldn't find a translation that says this, but he might have been their gopher. Like we had uh, Ted McGinnis isn't here this morning, but that was his job during VBS. Something a little bit like that. And so uh, this, this team, they go to the island of Cyprus. They proclaim the message of Jesus. They confront evil spirits. But at the end of that episode, we're told in verse 13 that Paul and his companions sail to Perga and Pamphylia, but John Mark leaves them and returns to Jerusalem. We're not told why. For whatever reason, John Mark walks away from this work that is just beginning, this work that had been clearly ordained just earlier in this chapter as the work of the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of theories as to why that is. There's no real way to prove any of them. And at the end of the day, I don't think the specific reason is all that relevant. And maybe John Mark was just homesick. Maybe the journey was more than he bargained for. If you read all of Acts chapter 13, all that goes on before John Mark goes back to Jerusalem, it's, it's a pretty intense story, so you can't really fault him that much. Maybe he didn't like the fact that Paul was taking the lead, and his cousin Barnabas was moving into the back seat. Right there in Acts 13, right before John Mark deserts them, is this hinge in the book of Acts where Paul moves into the center stage. This duo shifts from being referred to as Barnabas and Saul to Paul and Barnabas. Maybe John Mark wasn't a fan of that. Maybe he didn't like the work as much as he thought he was going to do. We don't know, and Luke isn't really that concerned with trying to inform us on specific reasons. The main point is that this is a period of excitement right at the beginning of Paul's missionary work. The gospel is spreading into new places where it has never gone before. Lives are being transformed by the message of Jesus. And with all of that going on, John Mark walks away. He had failed. There was a clear calling of what this team had been sent out to do. John Mark was a part of that And he walks out on that calling. But after that, the the work of Paul and Barnabas continues. The the fallout, however, has repercussions that go extend far beyond just that one story. In Acts 15, the leaders of the early church get together to deal with this question of how they're going to handle the issue of Gentiles coming into the early church. Uh, Rick showed us last week in chapter 10, Cornelius and his household being baptized and what that meant for the early church, and we'll look at that a little more in Acts 15 next week. But after this Jerusalem council concludes, everyone goes their separate ways. We see the tension created by John Mark walking away from Paul and Barnabas flare up again. In Acts 15, starting at verse 36, Luke says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, 
strengthening the churches. Barnabas isn't getting his own sermon in this series, but he might deserve one because of his consistent faithfulness and encouragement throughout this entire book. Because remember the last sermon in this series where we talked about Barnabas? It was a few weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 9 looking at the transformation of Saul of Tarsus. Saul comes into Jerusalem at the end of Acts chapter 9 eager to preach the message of Jesus and the church in Jerusalem is skeptical. You, you really want me to listen to a sermon from Saul of Tarsus? You, you remember when Saul of Tarsus put Stephen to death. You want me to listen to a sermon from the guy who has arrested or put to death my friends and my family. Yet there's one person who will stand alongside him. Barnabas. In Acts 9.27, Luke says, But Barnabas took him, Paul, and brought him to the apostles. He, he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. When no one else would stand alongside Paul, Barnabas did. And now he's doing the exact same thing with John Mark, coming alongside him so that with the hope that he can be restored into the work that God has called them to do. Yet Paul is not as keen on the idea of giving John Mark a second chance because of his abandonment of them in the past. That word in verse 38 translated uh, in maybe withdrawn or de deserted, departed, or it maybe had not continued um, in the translation you're reading from is the same word Jesus used in Luke 8.13 when he's telling the parable of the soils. Uh, when he's describing the rocky soil, which represents people who hear his message, and at first they're excited about it, but eventually life gets hard and they don't want to follow Jesus anymore, and he says that they fall away, they desert, they depart. And that's how Paul understands the situation of John Mark deserting he and Barnabas and returning to Jerusalem. Uh, this is not a situation where John Mark needed some time away to recharge his batteries. John Mark walked off the battlefield when his fellow soldiers needed him. He deserted them, and Paul did not want that to happen again. And yet, there is Barnabas. Barnabas is his nickname. It means son of encouragement, vouching for his cousin John Mark, inviting him back into the game in spite of his failures. And we don't need to litigate the entire disagreement between Paul and Barnabas and sort out who was right and who was wrong. Luke doesn't seem all that interested in that. But what we see in this text is that there is a disagreement over what to do with someone's failure and how to go about the process of reconciliation. And that disagreement is so sharp, it leads to a split. Barnabas takes John Mark and goes one direction. Paul takes Silas and goes another and Acts chapter 15 ends with these two pillars of the early church, Paul and Barnabas, dealing with the fallout of John Mark's failure. One comes down hard, hesitant to extend grace and forgiveness, and the other is willing to reconcile and restore. But both are reactants to that failure, and that, and that failure at this point in the story is the defining characteristic of the life of John Mark. When you're in that moment where it feels like entire existence is characterized by failure, whether it's one event or a series of events of some sort, it feels like there's no, there's no way back. 
Maybe you've walked away from something God was clearly calling you to do because of your own fear or insecurities or some other reason, uncertainty about how life would turn out. Maybe you've had a season of life. Maybe you're in a season of life right now where you just don't think God can be trusted. You, you know what God's Word says about some specific area of life. You know that what you're doing isn't in line with God's revelation on that topic, but you don't really care, and eventually uh, that's found out. And in those moments, it can feel like no matter what you do for the rest of your life, the defining thing will be failure. Everything will always be evaluated in light of that. That's what John Mark is that as we get to the end of Acts 15. He spent plenty of time around the message of Jesus. He has been a witness to everything that's gone on in the early church. He's been on the front lines of some of the first missions work of the church, yet he failed. He walked away, and the fallout of that failure sends ripple effects out that lead to division, that lead to broken relationships. And at this point in the story, Mark's going to disappear from the narrative for a while, and it seems like if we were going to end the story right here, there weren't obituaries in the ancient world, but if we were going to write John Mark's obituary right now, the first line would say, John Mark, best known for abandoning Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And yet, the story's not over. Right here in chapter 15 is the last place Mark is mentioned in the book of Acts. But we get little nuggets if we read throughout the rest of the New Testament about what he's doing, what he's up to. And while we're not going to get the full story spelled out for us, I think those little nuggets are important because they give us a hint at reconciliation. And that reconciliation shows us John Mark's story does not end with failure. It ends with restoration to service in the kingdom of God. And the reason that's important is because if you have ever found yourself in John Mark's shoes... It's important for us to see that the story doesn't end in Acts 15, and therefore doesn't have to end there for you either. And so let's look at a few of these passages. The first passage I want to look at comes right at the end of Colossians. As Paul is wrapping up the letter, he's sending all of his greetings to the people in the church in Colossae. He says in Colossians 4.10, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, this is one of those instances where it's really unfortunate that the letters of our New Testament only give us one side of a conversation. Uh, I can't tell you for sure what these instructions Paul makes reference to here exactly are. We're really not even told explicitly if these instructions came from Paul or from someone else. But what we see here is is Paul standing up for Mark as he gives this command to welcome him. Throughout the New Testament, there is a high emphasis placed on hospitality, especially hospitality towards those who are traveling because of the message of the gospel, since there's no such thing as hotels or Airbnb in the ancient world. And therefore, if someone's going to be doing much traveling, they need to be welcomed in in each town by fellow believers. And more than that, throughout the ancient world, extending hospitality is, an, is a sign of relationship and acceptance. You don't welcome someone into your home unless you're willing to make the statement that you view them as a member of your community, as a part of your family. And so the fact that Paul thinks it's necessary to make this command to welcome in Mark seems to indicate that at some point, 
There's been hesitation from the church on whether or not to accept Mark, perhaps even instigated by the actions of Paul himself. But here in just one little verse, we get a glimpse of steps towards reconciliation. And we're not told what brought this about. The specifics of how this all came together are not as important as the fact that reconciliation is happening. John Mark was not ostracized because he didn't have it all together. He was welcomed into homes, into communities, into churches with others who had past failures just as he did because of the grace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Past failure did not equal future disqualification. That process of reconciliation is playing out here in the greetings Paul extends at the end of this letter of of Colossians for the benefit of the church as a whole, not just for Mark, for all believers, including us. The next passage I want us to look at is another greeting at the end of the letter. 1 Peter 5, 13, Peter writes, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. In the second week of this series, we looked at the story of Peter. We saw his own failures. We saw how that failure was transformed into faithfulness. And now, here at the end of this letter, Peter includes this greeting from Mark. He refers to Mark as my son, which is not a statement about biology. It is a statement about theology. Peter was well acquainted with failure. Peter was well acquainted with not following through on your bold commitments to to God. He had gone through a process of reconciliation. And I don't think it's an accident that in someone like Mark, Peter looks at him and is willing to call him his son. They both walked that path from failure back to restoration, excuse me, to to the point where here at the end of 1 Peter, they're ministering alongside one another because of the message of grace and restoration that is available through the message of Jesus. The last passage I want us to look at comes from the end of the last letter Paul ever wrote, 2 Timothy. By the time Paul writes this letter, he is an old man. He is sitting in a prison cell in Rome. Essentially, he is sitting on death row. Years of traveling and preaching and suffering for the sake of the gospel has taken its toll on him, and he pins his last letter to his protege, Timothy, As he gets to the end of the letter, he is giving his final instructions, farewells. He writes in 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 to 11, he says, Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful. Your translation might say useful to my ministry. This is one of the last things the Apostle Paul ever writes. Others have abandoned him, like he mentions in those verses, just like Mark had abandoned him so many years before. We're not given a reason why. We're not given an explanation of what Paul means with that term helpful or useful. Maybe he wanted to see Mark one more time to be reminded 
There's always hope for failures. Maybe he just needed someone to, to fill some sort of role in Mark he felt was the right man for the job. Regardless of what is going on, we, when we read these verses and we see Paul go from mentioning someone who has abandoned him in his work and then going right to mentioning Mark and asking that he would come to visit him, we should be reminded the truth of this morning that past mistakes does not mean future disqualification. There's hope. There's hope for restoration and reconciliation. For those moments where we run away, where we don't trust God, where we think He isn't faithful, and so we got to go figure it out on our own, we should always remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel. There's always hope. There's always hope for restoration and reconciliation with God and with one another because of the message of Jesus. God is able to redeem us out of our brokenness, our disobedience, and our lack of faith, and our doubts, and He is able to make us whole. He's able to use us for the sake of His kingdom because God is bigger than any past mistake, and because of that, those failures don't disqualify us. They don't prevent us from following Jesus or being a part of His people. In our failure, we don't need time away from God or from the church to do penance. We need to come near so we can be made new. Some of you have maybe uh, heard or seen the, the heard of or seen the TV show The Good Place, and I'm not endorsing the theology of the show, but it does have some funny moments. And overall, this show centers around the question of what happens after death. And again, like I said, I'm not saying it's theologically sound, but essentially the premise of the show is that everything you do in life has either a positive or negative score attached to it. And so throughout your entire life, you're, you're racking up this score. And, and at the end of your life, if your score is high enough, you get to go to the good place. And here's some of the point values according to the show, in case you're curious. Give out full-size candy bars at Halloween gets you plus 633.59 points. I think that's a good thing. Rooting for the New York Yankees is minus 99.15 points, and all God's people said amen. Bringing your own bags to the grocery store gets you a positive 1,980.43 points, but if you save someone from a house fire, it's worth 1,909.47 points. So I don't know why bringing your own bags to the grocery store is worth more than saving someone from a house fire, but... I didn't, they didn't ask for my opinion. Blowing your nose by pressing down on one nostril and exhaling is worth minus 1.44 points every time you do it, just in, case, just in case that's how you blow your nose. And lastly, poisoning a river is worth minus 4,015.55 points, just in case you're curious. And we can read those scores and laugh and know that that's not reality. I think more often than not, we can default into thinking that this is how God operates. We can think of God as a cosmic scorekeeper, trying to make sure we do enough good things to stay on his good side and so that he'll be happy with us. And at the end of the day, all God's concerned about is making sure our score comes out on the positive side. And if I have a big mess up that's really going to put me in the red and I'm going to have to do a lot of work to get back on good terms with God... And I am here to tell you that that is not how our God operates. That is not how grace works. None of us 
are ever going to have a high enough score on our own to get back on God's good side by our own power. We are all in the negative with nothing we can ever do to redeem ourselves. The truth about ourselves, like my little cousin talking with Santa, is always worse than we'd care to admit. But the message of the gospel says that yes, we are worse off than we would ever care to admit. And yet, our God loves us more than we could ever imagine. Our God is a God of second chances and third chances and however many chances we might need. And I don't know about you, but I've needed more than one chance in my life. I've been in the shoes of John Mark, a failing having no hope apart from the power of the gospel, and that is where each and every one of us find ourselves if we are truly honest. The message of the gospel says that, yes, we have failed, but that failure is not the end of the story. The gospel brings hope, brings reconciliation and restoration so that we can have life with God and with one another. That's what John Mark experienced in his own life, and expressed through the work of the gospel in our relationship with others. The main human character we've been looking at this morning is John Mark, but we've spent a lot of time on other characters as well because so much of John Mark's story plays out through his interactions with people like Paul and Barnabas and Peter. And I don't know where every single person listening to my voice right now is this morning, but my guess is that if we all took time to pause and reflect, we can find ourselves among any of these characters at any given point in our life. Maybe you can think of situations where you have been Mark, you have failed, you need the healing hope of the message of Jesus expressed to you through those around you. You can think of situations where you are Barnabas or Peter and need to come alongside someone with encouragement to remind them that their story is not over because of the message of Jesus and you have walked with them and you can walk alongside them that you have been in those shoes and you have made it through because of Jesus and that means that they can experience the same thing. Maybe you can think of situations where you're Paul. Maybe there's been division. Maybe there's been a broken relationship. Maybe even for legitimate reasons. I'm not trying to downplay that, but now there is a need for, to pursue reconciliation. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that any of that is easy, but I am suggesting that because of the power of the gospel, it's possible. Again, not because of anything great in us, but because of how great our God is and how good of news the message of Jesus is for each and every one of us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you came to earth to save sinners like us. That when our sin had separated us from you, when we had been disqualified, Jesus came to die for us so that we might have new life. God, we ask that you would be with us, that you would help us to fix our eyes on you, to meditate deeply on the truths of the gospel of what you have done to transform our lives, of what is available through life in you, that you would walk with us, that we would fix our eyes on you, that we would be aware of the guiding of your spirit day to day, wherever that might take us, so that we might grow into the likeness of your Son. Be with us as we go forward in our worship this morning.
bring those truths to our mind as we take communion, as we sing songs. Remind us. Remind us of the hope we have in you, of what you've done for us, and the life that's available in you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.